invite you to turn in your Bible with me to the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke, and we're in chapter 22 as we're making our way through this wonderful gospel. We remember are in the, uh, the final uh, days, even day, uh, before Christ will go to the cross, and coming to the, the final, uh, some of the final teaching that Jesus will have for his disciples. Uh, Luke chapter 22 I'm going to begin reading at verse 14, and we're going to read through verse 28, excuse me, through verse 30. I apologize for not having an outline for you today. I completely forgot. So uh, I will try to give you the outline as we go along, and you can take notes as, as we do that. Luke chapter 22. Let's begin reading at verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we come now to this holy and inspired sword of the Spirit, and pray that, oh, Holy Spirit, you would do your work in our lives. Uh, we need to see Jesus here. We, we need to feed on him as he's presented to us in his word. Give us the grace to that end, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, uh, I've been surprised from time to time how relevant a particular text will be to the circumstances of that particular Sunday. We noticed that last week when uh, we celebrated, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper on uh, Sunday evening, and uh, we, by the providence of God, came to verses 14 and following Sunday morning, and so had a, pre- a preparatory service. Well, there's a, another interesting uh, relationship today that it's Father's Day today, and, and we come to a text that I think has a particular relevance for fathers. Uh, for men, uh, because the, 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 uh, the idea of gospel leadership, gospel headship, is an idea that uh, we need to be uh, trained in. It's not something that we inherently understand. 
In fact, uh, true gospel leadership runs contrary to the grain of uh, everyone, but particularly the grain of Christian men. I uh, was reading, remember, a, a book by uh, Stephen Arterburn, uh, what, it's called Every Woman's Desire. But uh, he, he tells the story of watching his young daughter, Rebecca, and her best friend, uh, Tracy, playing with dolls. And he writes this, he says, one early evening, Rebecca and her friend Tracy were plunked down on the kitchen floor uh, playing family. When I slumped into a, a breakfast nook chair there following a hectic day, absently gazing their way, I became mesmerized by the imaginary interplay between Rebecca and her doll family. Mama doll bantered lightly with baby doll as she stood by the stove stirring supper. Meanwhile, Tracy drove Papa doll home from work. Walking him past his sweet plastic wife, she paused so Papa doll could give Mama doll a peck on the cheek. Suddenly, a dark scowl rolled across Tracy's face as she marched Papa doll into the living room and slammed him onto the couch. <clears throat> Daddy's going to lay down, she announced to all with disgust. Daddy never does anything to help. I shivered in my chair. <laughs> it strikes a little close to home, I think. Uh, if you ever play a word association game with, uh, with Christian men, ask them to respond to the word leadership. Uh, words they'll come back with most likely are decision maker, uh, provider, visionary, head, but Jesus gives us a different word, servant, uh, the active verb service. <clears throat> I am among you as one who serves. And so that's an appropriate lesson for all of us, but particularly on today, on Father's Day. Uh, we're going to see, and I'll give you the outline in broad form, where the, the three points this morning are a sovereign Lord, <clears throat> a sinful dispute, and a serving Savior. A sovereign Lord a sinful dispute, and a serving Savior. Those would be the three points. First, just notice the sovereign Lord. I'm not going to take a long time on this, but I didn't want to bounce over verses 21 through 23. We did not deal with that last week, and there's a significant truth here that's part of the context for Jesus' discussion <clears throat> with his disciples. So they're, they're gathered around eating the, the Passover meal. It is, it is a profound evening and night they'll never forget. Uh, Jesus has just spoken these shocking words, this bread is my body, which is for you, and, and this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the cup that represented the Passover lamb. Jesus says now represents my blood. I am the Passover lamb. But Jesus, notice, immediately after saying these things, um, moves into this, maybe to their minds, even more stunning statement, uh, behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. Uh, the, the, the tense here is very uh, graphic. It's the, the hand of the one in the act right now of betraying me, present participle. It's happening now as we speak, and, and the hand is on this very table. There's only 13 men gathered around the table. One of them is a betrayer. Uh, the, the disciples would have immediately noted the, the terrible offense of this. A, 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 a dinner table, particularly a Passover meal, is, is one of the most uh, a place of sacred intimacy and trust and friendship. 
Uh, meals in general in that culture are, are places where um, disagreements are laid aside. It's, it's fellowship and brotherhood. And so the disciples would have been stunned to hear that someone was violating that sacred trust. Jesus wants them to know it's not an accident. It's not, um, it's not something that um, was profoundly not supposed to happen. He says the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. There's sovereignty at work here. As it has been determined. Uh, God has done the determining. The sovereign, predestin- predestinating, ordaining hand of God uh, is, is at work. And Jesus wants them to see that what is happening, what's unfolding in this betrayal and everything else that's going to happen is none of it is accidental. That God is at work. They don't understand it yet, but God is at work. And we know now at work reconciling the world to himself. But Jesus wants the disciples to see it, and so he tells them uh, that this is what is happening. And you'll find that after the, the, uh, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, when they talk, when the disciples talk about uh, the cross, uh, they, they talk about the sovereign hand of God. So Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching, uh, and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In Acts 4.28, the church is praying, and um, they, they, they talk about how the leaders have risen up against Jesus Christ to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There's sovereign, ordaining will being exerted uh, the, the sovereign ordaining will of God. Nonetheless, that does not excuse Judas's behavior. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. There's um, confusion on this, uh, but, but Jesus is very clear that, that sovereignty does not lessen human responsibility to the slightest degree. In, in Matthew 26, Jesus says, it would have been better for that man, for Judas, if he had not been born. Now, people can wrestle with this. How, how is it possible if God predestines every human act, even sin, then how can he find fault with people when they do what they were predestined to do? Shouldn't he thank them? You find this exact line of reasoning in Romans chapter 9 where, where Paul will say, you know, you, people will say, well, then how does he find fault with us? Some, uh, some vessel, God takes clay and he makes out of that clay some vessels for noble use and some vessels for, for ignoble use. And, and if, if, if I'm just, I'm the ignoble guy over here, I'm, I'm the one who that's sinning, rebelling according to uh, the, the predestined plan of God, how can he blame us? Well, that's where we, um, we just have to acknowledge that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how to explain that to you. Uh, all we, we need to say is that it's, it, it's not the contradiction that it, it seems to be in our minds. I, 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 I hear people say, uh, you know, I don't believe in predestination. I believe in free will. Well, we just need to note Jesus believes in both. Without any explanation. There's no contradiction in Jesus' mind between free human choices and sovereignly ordained choices. The, uh, he, he holds both 
ideas, truths, not as contradictory things, but as the simple fact of things, the reality of things. This is how the world works. God ordains everything. Humans freely choose to do everything that God has ordained, but they making the choice are culpable then for their actions. Because the choices they make, they make freely. Right? In its own way. They do what they want to do. And so they are culpable. Now, there is an apparent paradox here, but it's not a true one. It seems contradictory because we don't have all the information, right? It's like the Trinity, three in one. How do you explain that? Well, there's just a place we come and say our puny little minds, it shouldn't surprise us, are not able to grasp the full glory of God. That's okay. He's revealed to us the things that we need to know. The secret things still belong to him, Deuteronomy 29, 29. That's okay. But, but we, um, Jesus wants his disciples, and he wants us to see the beautiful sovereign plan of God at work in his own suffering and death in the greatest crime that the world has ever seen. There's a pastoral implication here that I just want to quickly hit. Because when you, when you ask yourself this question, does God ordain even sin? The answer is yes, he clearly does. Judas was ordained to commit the greatest uh, sin in the history of the world. Why would God do that? And the answer is to accomplish the greatest act of grace and mercy in the world. God ordained this great evil to accomplish the magnificent good of the death of his son in, on behalf of sinners, bearing their guilt and suffering the judgment that belonged to them so that sinners could be set free. And if that's true, if, if, if God ordains the greatest sin in human history to accomplish the greatest good in human history, is it not reasonable then to think that possibly God would ordain your sin to also accomplish a great saving good? I think it's exactly the case. Isn't it true that it's your sin that God has used to humble you, to show you how desperate, needy you are? Isn't it, isn't it the truth that, that God has had to um, use your sin to make you hungry for grace? You just wouldn't be hungry for grace otherwise. It isn't true that it, it's the truth of your sin, and you see the love of Jesus Christ for you in your sin, that your love for Jesus Christ then expands and grows. How could we not love someone who loves us so much in this way when we are what we are. Now, that doesn't excuse sin, of course. God hates sin, and, and we must hate sin. And, and delight in, but, but as we're doing that, right, don't, your sin is not the, the only player on, on the chessboard, in a sense. The, the sovereignty and, and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ is, also needs to, to be seen there. Because there's, there's sin that takes place here, and we, we see this, this working of God in the sin of the disciples. Uh, we come to a, a sinful dispute. Verse 23, they begin to question one another which of them it could be that was going to do this. We know from the other gospel accounts that they began to question Jesus. Lord, is it I? Is it I? But Luke tells us they also began to have these debates among themselves. Who, do you, who could do this? Who, who do you think it could be? My guess is that most minds kind of leaned toward Matthew. 
Matthew was a tax collector. Clearly had a money problem. Um, clearly was comfortable with betraying the people of God. He, he made a living out of it. So it's very possible that they, well, what do you think? You think it's this guy? You think it's that guy? And then apparently it got personal, and, and maybe someone says, well, is it you? And it's easy to see then how um, the discussion could turn into which one of them ought to be regarded as the greatest. Isn't it fascinating how this just, this just shifts? Me? What do you mean me? I've been with Jesus uh, the longest of any of them. I, I've had these unique experiences. You know, if it's Peter or John, hey, listen, we were up on the mountain. Remember Transfiguration? Who was not there? <clears throat> So if we're going to have this discussion, who might this, um, I really think in all fairness and honesty, I ought to be regarded as the greatest. And, uh, and, and so the debate goes on. And, it, and it's, it's a dispute. And it's a dispute they're used to. They've had this discussion before. We know it from the gospel accounts. Luke chapter 9, verse 46 and 48, uh, they, 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 Jesus tells them, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to, be, um, I'm going to suffer, and their response is, oh, which of us is the greatest? That's right where it goes. Who's going who's to get the throne? Who's going who's to be on the right-hand side? The mother of James and John gets involved, and she comes to Jesus and says, I think my boys ought to get the places on the right or the left. That's embarrassing. <laughs> but that's exactly what happens. That's, how, does, how does this happen? I'm, I mean, if there's ever a time not to have this discussion... Jesus has, has poured out his love for them in the Lord's Supper. They know that he's in grave danger. This is, this is so completely out of order. It's, it's completely inappropriate. And yet there they are. What's going on? Well, what's going on is these men are just being men. They're just being sinful men. You see, because to, to, to be a sinful man is, is and, and this is cross-gender, male and female is the same thing, but you see, there's this, this, this huge idol of self. We're born with it. It's part of our DNA. So, so, so why, boys and girls, when, when the pizza gets cut up on, on the table? Who taught you how to identify and go through all the trigonomics of figuring out the biggest piece? Why, why, do you, why does your mind go there and you, see, and you kind of figure out where the lines are? Okay, that's the biggest piece right there. And maybe you're praying and you got your mind on the biggest piece. Why? Or the biggest piece of cake. Right? We just do this, boys and girls, don't we? Big people do too. Why? Because we love ourselves. Why do we need to be first in line? Why do, we, um, why do we get mad when somebody does something on the road that in some very minor way infringes on what we think right, belongs to ourself? We, we, can't, we love to have our way. We love to have our preferences. We love to have our peace and quiet. We think that's normal life. It's not normal. It's demonic. It's demonic. The devil has entered Judas, but the devil is clearly at work in these men. But Paul says, we don't wage war with flesh and blood. We wage war with principalities and powers. And so you see right here in the, in the, at the Lord's table, these men are just being themselves. 
and, and, and being themselves and, and bowing down to the idol of self brings about this wicked discussion about who's going to be greatest. And there's, there's division now happening in the body of Christ as this man sets himself up over against that man. And Jesus responds so graciously. He said to them, a serving Savior, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authorities uh, over them are called benefactors. Not so with you. Line in the sand. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus points out there's two different ways in this world, as he's done before. There's a broad path that's easy and leads to destruction. And then there's the narrow gate and the narrow way that leads to everlasting life. Two ways. There's two ways to build a house. You can build a foundation and set that thing on rock. Or you can ignore the foundation and go ahead and put it on sand. And when the storms come, uh, the results will be as predicted. Two ways to do things. And, and there's not really a blend. Uh, it, it's either, you see, we, we follow the principle of the way of this world and the, and the demon of this world, or we follow the Lord of life. We follow Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. There's two ways. This is the way of the Gentiles. Uh, they are convinced that leadership means privilege. That's why you want to be a leader. Leaders get to make the rules. Leaders get the benefits. And the way that um, uh, leaders... Uh, make sense of this is they call themselves or they're called benefactors. So what is it that uh, if you would ask a man who uh, can, can walk into a house, I've been guilty and, and, and still am, can walk into a house littered with toys, um, littered with just the, the, an, an overwhelmed maybe young mother or, or a kids who need attention and, and in astonishing uh, blindness to all that, just go and grab his beverage or his his phone and just Facebook and go sit in a chair and he's gone. And now if you'd ask that man, if you'd say, how how did you do that? He would say, well, what do you mean? Well, I mean, how did you walk past all that stuff? I mean, it's amazing you made it through without breaking a leg. How did you, how did you, how did you get from there to there and just, and you didn't see any of it? And he said, well, I worked all day. I'm the benefactor. I'm the man who makes things happen. You see, in the, in the Greek, the word benefactor, it's to energize. The idea is the person who gets the wheels going and, and who provides the benefits, who provides the goods. This is how the governments think, right? We, we make things happen. And because we make things happen and we provide the goods, uh, we get the privileges then. And so, and so you can have politicians who are screaming at the rich and we need to soak it to the rich, uh, but who have no problem whatsoever Gathering great riches to themselves. Well, of course, they're, they're, the, they're the benefactor. They're the energizer. They're the ones who make it work. Well, that's, you see, that's what Jesus says. That's the way of the world. And Jesus, I mean, it's very strong, not so with you. Not so with you. Close the door. That is not how we're going to do leadership. Um, these men are going to be leaders. They're going to, these are the apostles. Judas is going to go to hell. These men are going to the mission field. 
as the apostles of the church of Jesus Christ, the only apostles the church will, will have. But their leadership, their authority over the, the faith and doctrine of the church is, is got to look like Jesus' leadership. They have to lead the way he leads. And so Jesus says, not so with you. We're not doing the Gentile path. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Who is greater? The one who reclines, who's at the table. And and if you're at the table, you have servants to serve you. Who's greater? The one who reclines or the servant? Well, it's the guy at the table. Jesus says, yes, but I'm among you as one who serves. And then he gave them a stunning example of what that actually looks like. I'd like you just to turn to John 13. John 13. I think it's best to understand what's going on in Luke 22 with our eye on John 13. Jesus gave this example either right before or after uh, the supper. So it, it's possible it was before this discussion. I tend to think it might be right at, during this discussion. I'm among you as one who serves. Either way, let's, let's pick it up in verse 3. Uh, verse 2, excuse me, of John 13. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This astonishing act of service, just humbles service. It would not have dawned on these men, any of them, to do what Jesus was doing, much less for Jesus to do it. It's shocking, but Jesus does it. And then, of course, he has this debate with Peter, Peter saying, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. Jesus rebukes him, and then pick it up at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So they're going to be the servants of Jesus They're going to be um, the messengers of Jesus. He's greater than they are. He's teacher and Lord. He says, you're right, I am. You're going to be messengers. You're going to be servants. You're not greater than me. You're not greater than me. And if I have done this, then you, being my servants and less than me, must do this. If you know these things and now they can't possibly say they don't, blessed are you if you do them. Now, if you think about our context, our, our circumstances, we all know these things. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you know that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not that you don't, ignorance is not our, is not our problem. We know we're supposed to put other people first. We know that. We know that we're supposed to honor others above ourselves. The problem, you see, is we don't do it. Not like we should, not like we could. Why not? Well, because we don't, we, don't, we don't want to. 
When that moment comes and the opportunity to wash feet or dirty dishes or dirty living rooms, the, the problem is we had our, our heart set on something else, ourself. And so we don't want to wash feet. We seriously don't. See, the, the disciples, they're stuck here. They knew they shouldn't be having this argument, but we, in, in Mark chapter 9, uh, Mark tells it in a wonderful way. They're, Jesus tells them he's going to suffer, and they're on their way, they're on the road, and they get to a house, uh, the house in Capernaum, and Jesus says, uh, what were you guys talking about on the road there? And they were ashamed to say anything because they'd been talking about who was the greatest. They know. But, but you see... They, they need to be first. They need to be regarded. They needed to be acknowledged. They need to be first. How do you fix that? Well, there's, let me just point out here. In, I think there's a connection between John 13 and, and Luke 22, 28 through 30. So if you're in John 3, look at verse um, 3 here a minute. John 3, 13, excuse me, verse 3. John 13, 3. And we'll wrap up here with just looking at the power to serve. So, John 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and took the towel and, and, and began the service. Notice just, why does John put that there? He wants us to see that Jesus, he's not needy when he gets up to do this. He is full and fully aware. He's fully aware of his authority. The Father has given all things into his hands. He's not a victim of circumstances. He is exactly where the Father has placed him, and, and the Father has, has given now this ministry into his hands, and it's going to be victorious. He knows this. Secondly, he's fully aware of his identity. He had come from God. He knows who he is, the second person of the Trinity, come from God. And he knows his destiny. He was going back to God. He knows his, his authority, his fullness, he knows his identity, he knows his destiny. And knowing those things, born in, those, in that conviction, Jesus rises from the supper and takes a towel and washes feet. Now go to Luke 22, verses 28 through 30. Because I don't think it's stretching to say that Jesus reminds his disciples of these same ideas these same concepts of identity and authority, fullness um, and, and destiny. Verses 28 through 30. Notice he reminds them first of their identity. You are those who. This is who, they, this is who you are. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. They are identified with the ministry of Jesus. They've walked with him. They've slept out in the, in the uh, open fields with him. They've, they've been with him. They are fundamentally Jesus men. They're Jesus men. You'll notice in Acts 4, if you remember, 4.13, Peter and John are on trial before the Sanhedrin, and they have boldness, and they have confidence, and they're willing to die. And we're told in, in Acts 4.13 that they, the Sanhedrin, recognized that they, Peter and John, had been with Jesus. They're, Je they're Jesus men. So, so there's this, this amazing identity. You see, Peter and John finally get it. This is who we are. 
Jesus reminds them of their authority, their fullness. I've assigned to you, as the Father has assigned to me, a kingdom. A kingdom has been assigned to them. The kingdom of God. And they've been assigned leadership in that kingdom. And Jesus reminds them of of their destiny. That you may eat and drink at my table and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's, That's a satisfying of every longing of your heart. That's glory, that's honor, that's, that's fullness forever. To eat with Jesus at his eternal banquet feast and rule over his new Israel. Jesus reminds them of the fullness that belongs to them, that, that empowers their service. But you see, they don't get this yet. We're going to see as we move through the story that, that when Jesus is arrested, self still reigns, and they each serve themselves. Peter uh, denies that he ever knew Jesus, even calling down curses. To save his own skin. The others just run for their life. At the end of the day, they end up serving what was most precious to them, their own self. Which is what makes it possible for us to know what we ought to do. And to even have a sense that, that it's, it's, it really matters. But when push comes to shove, we're going to do what we want to do. How do you fix that? How, what can break these men? from their their pride, their devastating self-interest? Well, what we find is that only the cross can. Only only the reality of Christ's death and resurrection is going to, can end their, their addiction to themselves. Only when they see Jesus Christ actually nailed to a Roman cross and the sky is dark and the judgment of God uh, is being poured out as the blood of Christ flows, when they see the sorrow and the love of Jesus Christ as he dies for them, that finally breaks the idolatry of self. And when he rises again from the grave, there is new hope and new birth to to an enduring hope. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out and there's a power that they had not known before. They're finally able to give themselves to Jesus and love Jesus. And so you find that after the death and resurrection of Christ, there's never again in the book of Acts, in the the letters of Paul, Peter, James, John, never, never again another example of this wicked discussion about who is the greatest. That discussion's done. Jesus is the greatest. And everybody else is a servant. And they all lived then as servants of Jesus, and they all, save John, died as martyrs. As they followed their Lord. And that's, friend, the, the, the truth of the gospel. You see, only the cross can pour contempt on all our pride. Only the cross can break your bondage to self-interest. And you've got to beg that God would do that for you in Christ Jesus. When you face the truth of what you know you ought to do and then the truth of what you actually desperately want to do. Only Jesus Christ, in his love for you on the cross, can make this what you want to do. I want to serve. I want to be free from my bondage, my addiction to me. I want to be a man who who gladly takes up the towel and starts washing feet and picking up the living room. I I want to be a Jesus man. God, don't let me die without learning to be a Jesus man. That's our prayer. And what God will do for you as you pray that is he's going to, he's going to, help you just more and more see the beauty of Jesus. Let me, let me just read here from a recent post by Kevin DeYoung how Christ alone can fix us. Kevin says this, our main problem 
is not the lack of time or resources or the annoying people in our lives. Uh, Your main problem and my main problem is that we do not see enough of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Too many of us are toying around with gimmicks and looking for quick fixes and miracle cures. Too many of us are digging deep inside ourselves for the change we want. Too many of us spend our time tinkering with sports and the internet and home repairs while neglecting the one thing that is most needful to sit at the feet of Jesus, to see him in the preaching of the word, to gaze upon him in the scriptures, to meditate upon the pages of the Bible, to spend uninterrupted, unhurried time with the Lord. This is what we need. Pray persistently and passionately to know Jesus more because there's no growing apart from gazing and no becoming like Christ without beholding, beholding him in his glory. That is not just a, a, a rebuke. You need to do your devotions more often. It is, it is simply, what hope is there for you and for me? How are we going to change? Jesus Christ is the only way to change, and we brothers, we've got to pursue Jesus. We've got to be known as Jesus men. And, and as we pursue Jesus, the Lord speaks to us the truth about who we are. We're not just sinners. We're saints, called to be saints. We're called saints in the Bible. If you, are, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you've been bought with the blood of Christ. You're not your own. You, you belong to him. Identity is critical to growth. You're not a failure. Do you sin? Yes, you do. Do, you, do, you, do those sins wound people? Yes, they do. Do you feel powerless? Yes, you are. But you're not a failure, not if you're a Christian. You're a child of of God. You need to to remember the authority that you have as a a man, as a husband, as a father, as a a leader in in, in any way in the church or in in your spheres of influence. Um, You you have authority as a Christian to lead, to to serve, you see. You have have that right. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what are you guys doing going to the the courts of the the land? Don't you know you're going to judge angels? A a kingdom has been assigned to you. There's fullness and authority, and there's a beautiful destiny. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you've not been destined for wrath. You've been destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for you so that whether you are awake or asleep, you might live to him. Brothers, let's make that our prayer. Sisters, let's make that our prayer. Let's live to him so that we might live with him in this life and forever. There is a power that's able to break our addiction to self. It's the power of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, according to the word. May God bring that power into our life. Amen. God in heaven, you know how much like the disciples we can be. You know, Lord, how we allow self to dominate our thoughts, our desires, our attitudes. We want our way. And because we want good things, sometimes we think um, that our our selfishness is, it's okay. It's justifiable and it's not. Jesus, uh, you went to the cross gladly, scorning its shame for the joy of serving your people. And the joy of pleasing your Father and bringing glory to his name. So Jesus, we want to be Jesus' people. We want to be people who 
understand we can't live like the world in our selfishness. There's a fundamentally different way to live. And it's not for ourselves. It's, it's for you, Lord. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would change us as we commit ourselves to being Jesus' people, people who know Christ and people who love Christ and depend upon Christ and look forward to seeing Christ and who gladly serve Christ as we serve others in his name. Lord, I pray for the, the homes of this congregation. I pray for the men who lead them. Thank you for them. I pray that you'd build them up in confidence of who they are and your power that is able to help them lead with grace and tenderness, thoughtfulness and kindness. Lord, I, I pray that you would be with, um, be with this church, that we would, Lord, be more and more acknowledged as people who've been with Jesus. There's no other explanation. Help us to live like that. And we'll give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.